All right, kind of get everybody up to speed where we are in this particular book. Uh, Of course, the book of Philippians was, uh, as we mentioned earlier, is like a love letter to the church at Philippi. Uh, There's really not a whole lot of uh, doctrinal teaching in this book. There's really not a whole lot of of, um, admonitions or or corrections about things that they need to do right, Um, because um, Paul uh, really, really loves this congregation. It's his favorite congregation, evidently. And so after making the customary greetings in chapter 1, he makes mention of the fact, beginning at verse 5, about their fellowship, and what he means by that is, this is a church that sent him money uh, on his missionary journeys and took care of him, even when the other churches wouldn't. Uh, They supported him in his journeys, and even now that he is in prison, there in the city of Rome, this is where he wrote this particular book, in the city of Rome, while he was a prisoner, They had sent money to him again, along with a manservant, if you will, a person to help him by the name of Epaphroditus. And so um, he is thanking them for all the help and support that they have given him down through the years, and even at this moment. And then he goes on and talks about how if he could be anywhere else on the face of the earth, if he could get out of prison somehow, he would want to be with the church at Philippi. And um, at the bottom, uh, you get verses 7 and 8, you almost can feel the emotion and the compassion that he has for these people and um, how he remembers them in their prayers. And then he basically goes on and wants them to understand. In fact, he says in verse 12, I, but, I would sh- sh- uh, but I would ye should understand. Uh, they evidently asked about how things were going. How was life in prison? Uh, are you miserable, maybe? He goes and says, it doesn't matter whether I'm in prison or not, the gospel is being preached, and that's all he cares about. Uh, even, uh, he goes on in the rest of the uh, couple, next couple of verses, talk about even those people who talk bad about him, uh, even if um, there are preachers that are saying bad things about him, as long as they're preaching the gospel, he didn't care. Uh, in fact, uh, that's the case as verse uh, 18 ends. He says, I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. And then he begins a conversation about he didn't know how he is going to uh, end up, what the result of his trial is going to be, whether he's going to be put to death or or set free. And it caused a conundrum with him whether he would want to be set free or whether he would want to be put to death. And as he says famously in in, um, uh, verse uh, 22, he says, uh, or verse 21, he says, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor. Yet I choose not what to do. For I'm a straight betwixt the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far, le- far better. Uh, here was a man that um, so wanted to go to heaven that he had struggles with himself whether or not he should live. But he finally decides after he adds everything up, that he needed to stay here on this earth because it was better for the church at Philippi. He loved them so much, he decided he needed to see them again, so he hopes that the outcome would be that he would be found innocent and not be put to death. And then begins a discussion, which we're still following. Um, Beginning at verse 27, he begins a discussion about unity in the church. And basically he says, the number one thing I want for the church at Philippi, the most important thing that will make me happy, a congregation that I love dearly, is for y'all always to dwell in unity. 
that the church always strives to be unified. And he begins that discussion there at the end of chapter 1, and he carries it over into chapter 2 and talks about all the different ways that they are unified, talking about how that they are united in, in the love of Christ and the fellowship of the Spirit and how they need to be of one accord and of one mind. And then he talks about in verses 3 and 4 how that nothing should be done for strife or vainglory. Uh, instead of being so stuck on yourself, and I'm paraphrasing here, you need to be concerned about other people. Uh, get rid of the selfishness you have in your life. If the church is going to be unified, it's not all about getting your way. It's not about you. It's about the group as a whole. What is best for the church? And that's basically where the discussion ended last time, that he wants everyone to be unified. But now he's going to drive the point home. Here's the secret to the whole thing. Now look at verse 5. Keep in mind, this is talking about unity, and he says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. One of the most beautiful passages in the Bible. A lot of doctrine here as far as Christ is concerned. Uh, It's not doctrine as far as you're trying to get them to understand something. He's not having a lesson on doctrine. But he's making a very important point. We'll go through and break all this down in just a minute. But in the theme of what he's talking about, and we've talked about this before, how Paul piggybacks on things that he says. It's almost like he's talking about something that makes him think about something else in connection to that. In in connection to his discussion about unity, I want you to be unified. This is my greatest wish, my greatest desire. I love this church so much, I want you to always dwell in unity. What in the world does this passage have to do with that? Okay, and just to, to elaborate on that just a little bit more, how does that, what's that got to do with unity? So you, what you're saying here, this is the epitome of unselfishness, and we should have the same attitude. Yes, Tony. Okay. Uh, here, God, um, Jesus, of course, are one. In fact, in, when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, in John chapter 17, that's one of the things he prayed is that we would be one as he and the Father were one. And even though he was one, he committed the most unselfish act a person could commit. Yes, Glenn. Absolutely, because as we're going to see in these verses here, he didn't think about himself at all. It was all about everybody else. In fact, verse 5 begins that the secret to having unity, he says, first of all, we need to have a mind transplant. We need to start thinking like Christ thinks. He says, let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. Uh, we need to start thinking the way that Christ thinks. Um, one of the things about being a Christian, uh, the very word itself means that you are a follower of Christ or you are a disciple of Christ, you are a student of Christ. Uh, you are the one that wants to be like Him. And so... Paul is saying here, you need to have the same kind of mind, or literally, and maybe some translations have this, have the attitude that Christ has. 
What is Christ's attitude when it comes to others? What is Christ's attitude concerning the church? What is Christ's attitude concerning other people's feelings and other people's wants and what's best for other people? What is Christ's attitude when it comes to loving others? And so he says, this is the way you need to start thinking. And he doesn't just leave you hanging there and saying, this is the way you, this is the attitude that you need to have. When he says, be like Christ, he's going to show us in these verses what he's talking about. And you start looking at it, and the things that are going on here are amazing. Notice the first thing he brings out here. He says, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Now, he's making the case for us. He's making a logical argument here, and he's starting with the point of this. He is saying, here is someone who is God. The whole point of the verse, even the word being there, we sometimes use the word um, being, and we don't associate with it what's being brought out in this verse. The being here is the same word that we would use when we talk about someone being a human being. Now, we we call someone a human being. What do we mean by that? All right? Um, There's there's no denying it. That's that's a person. That is uh, a human through and through. Now, we refer to that person as being a human being. They exist and live or be human. And so Paul right here is reminding us when he uses the word being here, he's saying that this is a God being. This is not a human being. This is a God being. Uh, The King James uses the phrase in the form of God. And we hear the word form, we think of something that's like it or, or a pattern of it or something similar to it. But that's not what the word form here means. The idea of form here means that what intrinsically and inevitably makes this person God is what this person is. Uh, The word form here being used here is the idea of if if I um, wanted to make a a cast statue of Scott, uh, I would... Uh, go get some straws and first of all, put them up in his nose so he can breathe. And then I'll cover his face with uh, some type of molding so I can get a mold of his face. And then after I peel that off and seal it back up and pour the casting material in there, the thing that would come out would look exactly like Scott. And that's not really a good explanation of the Greek word, but the word itself means Jesus was totally in everything God. He was the exact God. I don't want to use replica because that makes you think that there is something different between him and God. But the idea of form there is that he, everything that makes God God, Jesus was God. Yes. Absolutely. He, Jesus was God. Everything that makes God God, Jesus was God. That's what Paul wants us to understand. Um, he was the being of God. He is the exactness of God. This may be a good way to put it. And the verse goes on and says, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Now, I know some other translations have some different words there. Uh, what are some other words you got there instead of robbery? 
all right, used to his own advantage. That's, I like that. Some of you may have uh, grasp or cling or hold on to. In other words, he's, what he's saying here is God, he didn't have to do anything about hanging on to being God. Adam and Eve, when they were in the Garden of Eden, and Satan came to them and said, if you eat this fruit, you will be like God. Well, they weren't God. They wanted to be God. That's why they ate the fruit. They were tempted because they wanted to be like God, but they weren't God. And to try to be like God, that was stealing from God. That was getting something that didn't belong to them. Paul's point is, Jesus had all this. He didn't have to grab a hold of it, steal it. It was already his. He was already equal with God. There was nothing he had to attain to. All right, Chuck, did I see your hand over here? I thought I saw your hand come up. But here, here's the other thing that's a part of this too, is that even though he was God, and this is beginning the next part of the conversation Paul is making, here's a play on words here. Even though he was totally equal with God, he wasn't trying to pull anything away from God. He wasn't robbing God. He wasn't claiming to be something he wasn't. He was truly God all the way. But he wasn't going to hang on to that because of what's going to happen next. He's going to let that go. Um, the word here in the Greek is the idea of some of you who've had dogs in the past and you ever play with a, play with a dog, um, with either a chew toy or a bone or something, that dog gets a hold of it with his mouth and he won't let it loose no matter how hard you shake it. In fact, you sometimes you can pick him up and spin him around. Now, why is that? It's because he wants, he wants that. He's afraid of letting it go because he might not get it back. Dogs are funny. They, they think that if they don't get that bone, they'll never have that bone again. And so the point Paul is making here is that wasn't the case with Christ. He was God through and through. But because of what he's going to do next, he wasn't going to hang on to that. He wasn't going to grab a hold of that and not let go of that because he was scared he, would, he wouldn't have it anymore. He was going to do something very special. And so uh, he didn't think that, um, that, that he needed, he needed to, to argue the point Paul is making here that we are, that God is God through and through. As I mentioned, the Garden of Eden, um, Adam and Eve wanted to be God point that's being made here is Jesus didn't mind giving up his equality with God to become man. Man wanted to be God. Now God is going to let himself become man. But make sure you understand the point that Paul wants us to understand that this is God through and through. And that sets the stage for the great unselfishness that, was, that he's going to put forth to us. Imagine being God. Just imagine that. And then imagine giving all that up. The idea, once again, at the end of verse 6 is the idea that he is willing to release or let that go. I'm going to give it all up. And so it says in verse 7, he says, but made himself of no reputation. 
Once again, some of the other translations have something different here. Made himself nothing. I like that. Anything else? Empty. The literal Greek word there is empty. It means a complete draining. All right? So the question that needs to be asked before we go any further, because this is a big theological discussion, if you go to school and study this with people, so-called scholars. Literally, he emptied himself of something. He poured something of himself out. He, he, when he let go of that, even though he thought it not robbery to be God, instead of being like that dog and clinging to it, he let it go. And he drained himself. Literally, the Greek word here is he drained himself of this. The question that's always a big discussion is, what did he drain himself of? Did he drain himself of being God? No, because in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. And then verse 14 of John chapter 1 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He's still God. He didn't drain himself of being God. He didn't drain himself of, of complete supernatural power because he could heal the sick, he could make the blind see, he could make the lame walk, he could calm the storm, he could multiply the loaves and the fishes. So he didn't eliminate his power, but he drained himself of something. What was it he drained himself of? You know, because he is going to die, okay? And when we have to die, okay. Well, you're, you're, you're getting there. I saw Glenn, then I'll come over here to her. All right, he, he drained himself of his divine nature, and I agree with that 100%, but he didn't drain himself completely of his divine nature because he did, he wouldn't be God anymore. So see, see what we're running into? Now you see why we have these long discussions when you're class in some place. All right, go ahead. Oh, see, now we're getting there. We're, we're getting close now. What are you going to say, Michael? All right, so take what you said and piggy it back on that, and then see what Jeff's going to say here. See, he he drained himself of all his rights and privileges, okay? There you go. See, everything you've said now, you're adding it all together, and it's coming to that particular point that you need to understand. When Jesus was totally equal with God, when it was not robbery to be equal with God, I mean, he had the right to be equal with God. There's a big word that we, not a big word, but a word that kind of sums it all up. He was independent. If you're God, what do you depend on? You don't depend on anything. You're God. You can do what you want. You're in charge of everything. Whatever you say goes. Why? Because you're God. Yes, you. Okay. All right. He got in a bad situation where the crowd was going to mob him. He disappeared. But think about who God is and how that God is totally independent of anything. But what about man? Man is totally dependent. Man depends on God. God doesn't depend on man. Man depends on God. And so what he has done here, is he, as was brought out, if you piggyback on the fact he dropped all his rights and privileges and, and everything everybody else said, is that he lost that independence. 
he now says, I'm going to drop being independent and totally going to be dependent like man is going to be dependent. Well, someone might ask the question, well, how can he do that and still claim to be God? Well, he was still God, but now he is going to be subordinate to the Father. The equality is going to change. If you go through the New Testament, especially the book of John, the thing that John emphasizes over and over again, and it's what's going to be brought here at the end of the section here, is that Jesus was totally obedient to the Father. Now, if he was equal with God, why would there why would he wouldn't be any need for that? Because they're equal. I'm God. You can't tell God what to do. But now for the first time in history, because he drained himself, if you will, of his independence and says, from this point forward, I'm going to come to this earth and live as a man, because man is dependent, and I'm going to put my full dependence on my Father in heaven. And not only am I going to put my full dependence on my Father in heaven, I am going to do every single thing he, he says. To show my dependence upon him, whatever God, whom I was equal with, tells me to do, I am going to do. In a sense, he says, I am no longer a free, independent person, but instead now everything I do is going to be dependent on what my Father tells me to do. There's where the draining is. There's where the rights and privileges were given up. There's where, he, where the change is made, where he can still be God, but as God, he has chosen now to lose all those things that gives him the independence that he had before when he was equal with God, and now he is going to be like man and totally dependent upon God. Yes, Glenn. And, and of course, Paul's going to bring more of this out here in a minute. But, and that shows the human side and the God side both. He was still God in the sense that if he, he could have called 10,000 angels and taken him out of that garden or taken him off that cross. He had the power to do that. That's obvious when you look at his temptation in the garden. I mean, not in the garden, but in the wilderness when Satan told him to turn those rock, uh, rocks into bread. He had the power to do that. But... Paul says, no, he drained himself all that. He wasn't going to do that anymore. He was going to make sure we understood and that God understood that he was totally dependent upon him now. And only if God says to do that will he do that. In fact, he even made the mention of Satan, you know, when he, he wanted to, Satan wanted him to prove how powerful he was. He said, I'm not going to tempt God. My dependence is upon him. It's not me anymore. I'm not acting in a God way anymore. It's all about him. It's what he tells me to do. But all very good points. So verse 7 says, He made of himself of no reputation, or he drained himself and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of man. Now, I was trying to think of a good way to illustrate the impact of this, of what it would be like to be God and then suddenly become human and draining yourself of what made you independent and becoming dependent. And the best illustration I could think of was something that happened many years ago. In fact, some of you probably don't even remember this. But there was a, a king by the name of Edward VIII. Anybody remember that? Well, if you remember it when it actually happened, you're getting kind of up in years, so I doubt, hopefully... Maybe nobody's in here actually remembers when it happened. 
But who can tell me a little bit what happened with the king of England named Edward VIII? Anybody? How's your history? Edward VIII was king of England. But guess what? He fell in love with an American woman by the name of Wallace Simpson. And this caused quite a scandal in the British government because not only was she American, but when they started dating, she was still married in her second marriage. But evidently, he loved Wallace Simpson, and he wanted to marry her. And basically, the parliament said, you can't do that as king of England. The Church of England said, you can't do that as a member of the Church of England. So what do King Edward VIII do? Or the, he, he gave it all up. He abdicated the throne. And um, if you go online, you can even see his, you know, this is not just something that happened a long, long time ago. This happened within some people's lifetime. They're still alive. Because you, you can watch his speech on TV when he addresses the, the English nation and explains to them, I am giving up my throne. I'm giving up all my rights. I'm giving up all my privileges. I'm going to take off these kingly robes, I'm going to take this crown off my head, and I'm going to place it down, and I'm going to just be a citizen just like you are. He gave it all up for love of a woman. And I've seen pictures of Wallace Simpson. She's not that pretty a thing. <laughs> but that's the, way, that's the way love is. The... Now, that doesn't compare in any way to what Jesus Christ did, but it kind of gives us a glimpse of what he did. He took off his crown, if you will. He took off all the rights and privileges of being God, and he did all of it for the love of you and I. He emptied himself. He drained himself. He took away all of his rights and privileges so he could become like one of us. And what's amazing as it goes on, and says not only does he drain himself, it says he took on himself the form of a servant. He didn't just come to this earth and be a man. But there's that word again, the form of a servant. Now we see that and we think, well, that means that somebody was like a servant or he was similar to a servant. Now, we've already discussed what that word form means, and so if, this, if that is still the case, what is, talk, what is being talked about here? If there ever was a definition of what a servant is, here's the definition. Here is the, the idea that word, actually in the Greek there is doulos, which means slave. Here is the true definition. Here is the intrinsic thing, the, the thing that makes a servant a servant, if you want to know what the definition of a servant is, never before in history have we really seen what the definition of a servant is until we see Jesus Christ. Not only did he drain himself and become a man, but he became the very definition of what it means to be a servant. And that's brought out in the fact that he came to this earth and his whole purpose in coming to earth was to serve mankind, to seek and to save that which was lost. Truly, he was a servant in the sense that he was going to do absolutely what his master told him to do, God the Father. So you, the idea of form here, once again, is the idea of this is the complete definition of what a slave or a servant is. And then it says, and was made in the likeness of man. 
Now, the word was made. That has some significance there. How was Jesus made? How was he made in the likeness of man or in the same way as man? Born of a woman. Um, God didn't say, well, Jesus, I want you to go to earth and I want you to live and die. Boom, you're a full-grown man. You got your own place, nice stereo and TV. No, he started just like you and I started. Born of a woman. Now, it was a supernatural birth. Uh, Mary was a virgin. There was no human man involved. It was the Spirit of God. But yet, Jesus was made or created in the same way that we were, and then that he was born of a woman. Uh, Ever since Adam and Eve, right after they were created, ever since then, everybody that came around was born of a woman. In fact, uh, even there in the book of Genesis there, in Genesis 3.15, it talks about how that uh, from a seed of of the woman, emphasizing the fact that from here on out, it's going to be from a woman, and even salvation is going to come from a woman, okay? So he was made in the same way that we were made, and then that he was born of a woman. But we're running out of time, and we need to kind of wrap this up. But it goes on and says, and being found... In fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. So now that he is, is man, he's fully fashioned as man, not only did he drain himself of being God, not only did he become the epitome of what it means to be a servant, he proves that he's given up these rights and privileges. He proves that he is a servant. He proves his unselfishness. He's proved what he's willing to do by being obedient to death. Now, that word takes on some more meaning when you think about how Paul ties together the word obedience and the word death. You really don't know what obedience is until it comes to the point that it's going to cost you your life. He gave up his his independence and became totally dependent on God and was so going to totally obey him, even if it meant his death. And then Paul piggybacks on that and talks about even the death of the cross. Now, why would he use the phrase even the death of the cross? If if he's going to die, he's going to die. Okay. That's one way to look at it. But but that's not chasing the rabbit I want to chase. The idea of the death on the cross is different from some other kind of death. Okay, it was a long, lingering death, but, and as she said, it was a very shameful death. Uh, Deuteronomy 21 talks about how curses anyone that hangs on a tree, and then Paul makes the connection in Galatians that Jesus did that. He became the cursed one on the tree. It was a shameful way to die. In polite Roman society, people didn't talk about the cross. The cross was a byword. Only the worst of criminals, only the most heinous of people, only the the dirtiest of the dirtiest would die on the cross. That's not a way for a gentleman to die. That's not a way for a nobleman to die. That's not a a way for a Roman citizen to die. So not only did he die, he died, as far as that time period is concerned, the most shameful way to die. And not only did he die on the cross in the sense that uh, he gave up his life, but you see the ultimate draining of what we talked about at the beginning of this section uh, when he says, Eli, Eli, lama shabachthani, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? 
the draining came to a complete end when he finally separated himself from God completely. Here was God separating him, allowing himself to be separated from God. You see what happened there? Somebody that was totally dependent on God finally, in the very end, even cut off even having that dependence anymore so that he had nothing whatsoever. Now, get that in your mind for a minute. He was God. He drained himself and became man, showing his dependence from God. But in the very end, to pay the price for us, he had nothing. The draining, the emptying, the making of himself of no reputation became full and final when God turned his back on his only begotten son and Jesus was separated from God completely. God separated from God to the point that he had absolutely nothing. Now, put all that together as we close and think about this fact. Here's the point that Paul is making. That's the attitude we're supposed to have when it comes to the church. That's the attitude we're supposed to have when it comes to being unified with one another. That's the attitude that we're supposed to have when we deal with others in the church. When they make us mad, when maybe the elders don't do certain things a certain way that you think they should do it, maybe if you're not getting your own way, if you will, Paul says, I want you to think about the unselfishness of Jesus Christ. He drained himself completely because he loved us so much, even to the point he was separated from God. That's the attitude that we're supposed to have. Anyway, we're out of time. Thank you so much for your attention and your comments.